I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, and you'll want to have a Bible in hand so you can follow along. So these brothers have some. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need one, get their attention. And it's marked for you at Philippians chapter 1. We've all been part of groups that are formed to accomplish a particular task. It may be as simple as a project at school when you were placed into a group of a few others to meet the requirements of an assignment. It may be something longer and something more meaningful, such as when people band together to elect a favored candidate or to promote an important cause. On occasion, a group is brought together at a time and place for a purpose that they know is going to have impact beyond their lifetimes. I think of the founding of our country, when in God's providence, some of the greatest military and political minds in history converged at the same time to fight a war against tyranny and to develop a system of government that has impacted the world for 240 years now. The signers of our Declaration of Independence understood the gravity of the undertaking that they had begun. When John Hancock placed his signature upon the Declaration of Independence, he was joined by the likes of Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and 52 other citizens of the colonies, all of whom were willing to sacrifice everything for their cause. The Declaration says, For the support of this Declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. King Henry V of England gave a famous speech in the year 1415 on a holiday in England called St. Crispin's Day. It was just before a battle between the English and the French. And he said what I'm going to read in, in part. Now, I've updated A few words slightly to make it more understandable because I'm reading from Shakespeare's version. And if you've ever read any Shakespeare, you know that it needs a little translation. But King Henry said, old men forget and all shall one day be forgot. But he'll remember what feats he did this day. Then shall our names be as household words. We shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. And he will never be so ill that this day will not help his condition. And gentlemen in England now asleep shall think themselves accursed that they were not here. And they will hold their manhoods cheap. When anyone speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. We come together for causes small and great. Some of them short-lived, others more enduring. But hear this. All of them will be forgotten. All of them. The politician or cause that was going to change the world didn't quite work out that way. Certainly that school project had a little impact beyond the grade you got on your report card. 
Even the founding of the United States of America will one day be a footnote in history. And it will be of no consequence when history is done. King Henry's speech, though it is a remarkable piece of rhetoric, and it inspired his men to an unexpected victory in battle, it's still transparently untrue. Because it's really Henry and Henry alone who's remembered for the victory. The men that made up his band of brothers are almost all forgotten by history. And Henry will one day be forgotten as well. But what if there was a cause to which you could give yourself? In which all of those involved would indeed be remembered. And the impact of their work would last literally forever. You just think about that for a moment. What if there were such a thing that you could be involved with, such that everybody with whom you're involved in it, and all that's accomplished because of it, would have impact and be remembered forever? That's the audacious claim the Bible makes for those who have given themselves to the cause of Jesus Christ. That cause to see lives transformed by the message of the gospel. And that gospel message taken forth by those who themselves have been eternally impacted by it. For those who belong to Christ, who also belong to a mission, the impact of which will not only last for time, but it's going to last for eternity as well. And that great cause influences that. How those who are committed to it, how they see and how they experience everything that happens while it is they're pursuing it. Everything is seen in light of the mission. At least that's the way it's supposed to be for you and me. If we name Jesus as our commanding officer. And if we are enrolled, enlisted in his army as it were then we're to see that as our objective. And we're to see everything that's happening in our lives in light of the pursuit of that objective. Last week, we began our series in the book of Philippians. We titled the series Together for the Gospel. We saw then that everything is to be used in support of the mission that Jesus has given us. Last week, we saw that relationship is for mission, and hardship is for mission, and discipleship is for mission. If you weren't here last week, you can hear that message and all of our messages on our website. So last week, we considered the centrality, the all-importance of our mission. Today, we're going to see the dynamics of the mission. That is, what is involved in our being together for the gospel? We're going to ask God to help us, and then we'll look at Philippians chapter 1 together. Our Father, we thank you profoundly that we can even think about and hope for doing something with our lives, the brief time that we have on earth, to accomplish work that will have impact forever. Impact on us, to be sure what impact on others. And most importantly, that we will have done what you placed us here to do. 
that we will have spent our years for the purpose for which you created and are recreating us in the image of Jesus. And so Lord, thank you that we can have that glad thought, let alone then to actively pursue it. We ask you, Lord, to direct our minds then toward that today. We need this time to come apart from everything that's happening in our lives. So many things that so easily distract us or though they are like everything part of the mission, we are blind to seeing it. And so we get engulfed in what we are doing as if that's what it's all about. Help us, Lord, to be reminded what it's truly all about. And as a result, may we leave here, each of us who name you and who follow you, better equipped and more eager to do your bidding in your world. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I invite you to take the outline that is inserted in your program. We do that every week. So if you don't have that out yet, I encourage you to look at that. We have two major points we want to see today from Philippians chapter 1. The first is this, that we should be thankful for our partners in the gospel. We should be thankful for our partners in the gospel. Verse 3 of chapter 1. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. Now, we briefly saw this last week, but I remind you that that word in verse 5, that's translated partnership, is sometimes translated participation. So you could translate that, that I, I pray with joy because of your participation in the gospel. It's a translation of a Greek word. Your New Testament was written originally in Greek, many of you know. And that word, partnership or participation, is a translation of a Greek word that some of you are familiar with, koinonia. Most often translated or understood as fellowship. So when we think about fellowship, how do you think about it? The Bible thinks of it as more than a potluck dinner. But we talk about having fellowship. Now, it's fine. I use that same language. I think even in our program today, uh, it says that ladies are invited with their little ones for some fun and fellowship at Chuck E. Cheese. But there's an, a more important partnership, sharing participation, that is this koinonia that we are involved in together and brought together to carry out. Now, to show you how ingrained it is that We've associated fellowship with lesser things. I think I've told you in the past, but you may have forgotten. If you haven't forgotten, give me a courtesy chuckle at the punchline. But uh, There was a, a boy, an elementary school boy, who for show and tell uh, was asked, along with his classmates, to bring in something to school that was a symbol of his religion. And a Catholic boy brought in a crucifix. There was a Jew, Jewish boy who brought in a Star of David. <clears throat> And there was a Baptist kid who brought in a, a casserole. <laughs> it's funny. It's also kind of true, isn't it? It's more than a potluck, is this fellowship. It is partnership. It is participation. 
And Paul, who wrote this, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the Christians at the church in a city called Philippi, was not only thankful for their participation with him in this great enterprise. He was not only thankful for that church, but he was thankful for all Christians who were active in promoting God's work. And that's why, as you look at others of the letters that he wrote to other churches in other cities, he starts many of them with the same kind kind of thing. For example, when he wrote to the church at Rome, he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. He says to the Colossians, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people. First Thessalonians, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Second Thessalonians, we always thank God for you, brothers and sisters. So he is constantly, regularly thinking about those that God has called out of the world and called to himself and called to mission as Jesus Christ has done for the great apostle. And he's thinking about them and thanking God for all of them because they are this band of brothers and sisters. Sometimes he wrote in the New Testament to individuals and not churches, but he has the same kind of gratitude to God that he has these comrades in ministry. To his protege Timothy, in Second Timothy, he says, I thank God, whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience, as day and night I constantly remember you in my prayers. Timothy, I long to see you. And to Philemon, his friend in the faith, he wrote, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. So notice in all of this, He's thanking God for them. He's thanking God for the fact that a number of things are true about his relationship with them. And I say in your outline that that includes the fact that we have been together. He's writing to these churches and he's writing to these individuals after their initial meeting and after God's initial work in them, mostly through the work of the great apostle. And he's thinking about and thanking God for the fact that they have been in the past together. The end of verse 4, again, in Philippians 1 says, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day. So he's looking back and he's thinking about The fact that from the very first day that I made the acquaintance of these Philippian people, now Philippian Christians, I think back with gratitude and thankfulness to God. And I do so with joy. We saw last week that Paul would have remembered a number of things about these people in the city of Philippi. So I just remind you of some of the people And things he would have remembered for which he was thankful. One commentator has summarized it well. That he would have remembered Lydia. We were introduced to her last week from Acts chapter 16 in your Bibles. But when the Lord opened the heart of a lady named Lydia. And she and her entire household received Jesus Christ as Savior. Paul certainly would be remembering that. Lydia was the first convert to Christ 
on the continent of Europe. She showed hospitality to Paul and to his associates before and after they were imprisoned and the church in Philippi probably met in her home. He would remember her. He would remember the Philippian jailer. And we saw that story last week in, again, Acts chapter 16. Paul could not have forgotten being thrown into that Philippian jail and put in stocks after he had been stripped and his back beaten. But out of that experience, the jailer and his household were converted to Christ. And he had shown compassion to Paul and Silas by caring for their wounds and by feeding them. He would have remembered Lydia and that Philippian jailer, but he would also have remembered gifts, gifts of material help, money, that the Philippians and other churches in the province of Macedonia had sent to Paul in order to further his work. He remembered the many times when the Philippians sent money to help him. Those times are mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where it's said that the Macedonian churches sent generous gifts out of their deep poverty. And then he would be remembering, thinking about the most recent gift, the present gift now that they've sent yet again through the hand of one named Epaphroditus. And he's mentioned in chapter 2 and verse 25 as the one who is bearing now yet another gift. And it was the occasion of this letter for him to write to them and say, I thank my God every time I remember your partnership in the gospel. He says that he does that in verse 4. He thanks God with joy. With joy. Now you've got to stop and think about it for a bit. (laughs) Because here he is at the beginning of this letter, and he's going to say very shortly in just a a few verses, in verse 7 to be exact, he's going to remind them that he is in chains. He's imprisoned, chained to a Roman guard as he writes this. And yet, despite the fact that he is under house arrest in Rome for doing nothing wrong other than preaching the gospel of Christ, he is saying that I think about you with joy. He's under house arrest, but he still has joy. Now, how how can he do that? Well, here's one of the ways he can do that. It's because joy for those who belong to Christ and thus have his spirit, have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, is a fruit of that spirit. It's an evidence of the fact that we belong to Christ. You all know that famously in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the spirit is listed. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, and another six items mentioned after that. He's under house arrest, but he still has this joy. He's telling them that at the very beginning of this letter, as an example, now hear this, of how they can have joy in the midst of their own trials. The things about which Paul is thankful are things for which they need encouragement themselves. And so he's recounting the truth, of course. He truthfully is joyful when he thinks about them, and he thanks God with this joy. But he's also making sure to recount that to the Philippians in particular because they need to hear it. As we are going to see as we move through the book of Philippians, they too are undergoing difficulties, both internal and external difficulties. 
And that's why this is the only letter of all of those letters from which I read earlier, where Paul gives this kind of greeting and says, I thank God for you. It's the only one in which he adds, I give thanks for God, to God for you with joy. And 16 times in the four chapters of this letter, he uses the word joy or related terms. So what is this joy? Well, it is not dependent on circumstances. I think that should be clear given that he has it and he's under house arrest. If it was dependent on circumstances, if it was dependent on things going well, then Paul wouldn't have it, right? Because things are not going well. But he still has it. It's not dependent on circumstances. In fact, it's constantly available because it is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And further, it focuses not on the transient. It focuses not on what is temporary, but what is permanent. In particular, joy focuses on God's work in his people. Most contexts of joy have to do with the source or the work of God in his people for which joy is the result. And that's why you have heard me over the years give a working definition of biblical joy this way. It is an abiding sense of delight that God is at work in my life. An abiding sense of delight that God's at work in my life. No matter what's happening, I have this absolute confidence that God's at work in my life. And that brings me this this sense of delight that something is happening here. I don't know exactly what's going to be accomplished out of all of this, but I know that God is at work not only in me, but he's also in work in all of you who are partners with me. And therefore, whatever's happening, I can give thanks with joy. But we forget. We forget and therefore we lose joy. And so we need to be reminded, as I'm doing this morning, as Paul is doing throughout the book of Philippians. And secondly, we need to do this, friends. We need to look outside ourselves. Our individual lives and their current circumstances do not show us always what God is doing. The truth is, with what's happening with me and what's going on in my life, I can be very easily oblivious to what God is doing. God has not shown me exactly what he is doing, but I know that he is at work, and therefore, that should have good effect on me so that I have this abiding sense of delight. God is doing something, and he's doing something ultimately good. So joy comes from the knowledge that God is at work in my life, but also in the lives of others. Now, let me be sure you're clear that when the Bible speaks of having joy and this abiding sense of delight, whatever's happening, it doesn't mean you're always happy. It doesn't mean you're giddy, happy, happy. I mean, too many church types are like that, aren't they? Just happy all the time. Listen, in a fallen world, forgive the grammar, it ain't always happy. It's sometimes really bad and really difficult. And you choke back tears. In the moment when the thing is happening to you, you're not happy. But you still can be reminded of the fact that God is at work. And it's almost like I think about when my girls were, were little. 
Sometimes now, even though they're not little. And they're sad. They may be crying. My job is always to come and make them smile. And so I talk to them about their woes. And then I do something silly. And I remind them of what a great life they've had then. And what God's doing. And then they start to smile. They're not happy. But they know that what I'm telling them is true. It's an abiding sense that there's much more in my life going on than the present circumstance. So hear this then. It's not always being happy. But look, you have this joy abiding with you because you have the Holy Spirit. And you need but remember it. And therefore I say this, show me a joyless person and I will show you an ungrateful person. You see, if you're joyless, if you can't remember that, it's because you're not remembering all the things for which you can and should be thankful. And that's why Paul is regularly starting out these letters with, I thank God. So he's reminding us that we should be thankful for our partners in the gospel, that we have been together, but also secondly in your outline. We have been together and we are together. It's one thing for us to have had an experience in the past, a common experience in Jesus Christ together, of being regenerated, of coming to him, of having the initial joy of our salvation. But then that begins to wane and perhaps people may flake off. So the fact that we have been together, we might think is no guarantee that we are going to be together, that we're still together. But then when you look at it, you go, not only have we been in the past, here we are. (laughs) We're still together because he says in verse 5, end of verse 4, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from that first day. We have been together, but notice until now, we're still together now in the present. When Paul would write these letters to these churches that I mentioned on the screen a bit ago, Thessalonica and Colossae and Philippi and Rome, when he would write those letters, he's often writing years after the time that he first met them and planted the church in that city. And so he's seeing this longevity. In the case of the church at Philippi, it's been at least 10 years As he writes this, it's been at least 10 years since he first met Lydia and that Philippian jailer and introduced them to Jesus Christ. But here they are 10 years or more later. Until now, they are still serving Christ. They are still partners in the gospel. So we're celebrating our 15-year anniversary. Thank God we're still together. Not only have we been together, here we are, still together. Did you know that most church plants, and those of you who aren't aware of the history of our church, 15 years ago this church started as a church plant with seven adults and five children. Did you know that most church plants do not last beyond five years? And God has now given us 15 years. Thanks be to God. Further, you're not still here 15 years later. 
without the protective hand of Almighty God. And you're not still here 15 years later without the protective hand of God through the camaraderie and partnership of his people. People who understand what I've said in the title of this message. You see at the top of your outline? This is called, We're in this together. (laughs) We're together for the gospel and we're in this together. And you've got to have people who understand that because there are going to come times when there is a challenge or challenges that can rip that apart. Make no mistake. Those of you that have been here for many of those 15 years, a bunch of you for almost all of those 15 years, You've heard me say at every one of our anniversary dinners, our celebration dinner, which is in three weeks. You've heard me say at every one of those, be sure to maintain the unity of the spirit. Why? Because it can break up. And if that breaks up, then your work is done. Your work is harmed, sometimes irrevocably. Now, over 15 years, adversity comes. Overall, for these 15 years, it has been a terrific ride. It has been terrific, wonderful. Thank God. It's been wonderful for me. It's been wonderful for my family. By the way, I sound like I'm signing off. I'm not. (laughs) But 15 years, Satan is going to attack, isn't he? And that has happened. One time in particular, it happened. Happened in a very severe way, in what could have been a very serious way, but I can say on the back side of that, thank God that He's at work in and through His people. And he's using the partnership of His people, fortified by maintaining the unity of the Spirit, so that we're able to come out on the back side of that better and not bitter. The book of Proverbs says this A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born. For a time of adversity. We're in this together. And at the time that we were going through that thing, I haven't cleared this with him, so I'm going to embarrass him. But at the time we were going through that thing, I will never forget a phone conversation with Larry, with Larry Castle. And Larry saying, Satan thinks he has us now. But he will not win. And I said to Larry, spontaneously, just from my heart, I said, Larry, I can't tell you how much I love you. Why? Because that's partnership in the gospel. Because that's making sure that's what's most important is the thing to which Jesus has called us. And as much as it depends on us, there is nothing that will get in the way of the progress of the work of Jesus. So we thank God that we not only have been together, but here we still are by the grace of God. We are together. And thirdly, we thank God that we will be together. So, you know, we come together. And by God's grace and in his good providence, he has kept us together. People move. People are promoted to glory. We've had that happen in our 15 years. And we always sense that sorrow of losing folks when that happens. But he's kept, he's kept us together. Here we are. And not only that, but 
there's a confidence that we will be together. Verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God's work that he began in the Philippians over 10 years ago, God's work that he has begun here 15 years ago, will be completed. Why will it be completed? Not because of me, not because of you, but because God is at work in me and in you. The confidence we have is not in us, but in the God who has called us. And that's why 1 Thessalonians 5 says, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. So verse 6 says, I, Paul, am confident. He's begun this good work in you and I remember that work that we have been together. I thank God that we're still together. And I believe with confidence that we will be together going forward. That God is going to complete his work in you. Now they have challenges. He's writing this letter because they have challenges, but he still believes they're going to emerge from those challenges, the internal and the external challenges. And God's work is going to be accomplished. That work at the end of verse 6 is that it will be brought to completion. That is to its appointed end. And what is that appointed end that God's work in you and in me has begun? It is for us to become like Jesus. And that's why it's focused on Christ Jesus. It's going to be completed, brought to its appointed end until the day of Christ Jesus. Some of those people at the church in Philippi, uh, some, all, and including Paul, they've died. And the day of Christ Jesus has not yet come. But Paul is writing prospectively about not only them, but also those that would come after them, us, and others that will come after us. But until the day that Jesus returns... Every one of his people, without exception, will have the work that God began in them completed. That's our confidence, without exception. And so, a couple of sides of that. As you struggle, as I struggle, if you belong to Jesus, he's going to complete his work in you. Even in the midst of your struggle. And as we work in partnership with each other and we see each other struggle, if our brother or sister truly belongs to Jesus, he will complete his work in them. Remember that. No matter how it looks now, if they belong to Jesus, he will complete his work in them. Now, if they don't truly belong to Jesus, then this is not a promise for that. But what I try to look for in the midst of the struggles that we have and the struggles that I work with with people and the ongoing struggles, I look for spark of spirituality, evidences of spiritual life in the, in the life of this person. And if there are evidences of spiritual life, then I can have confidence that God is going to continually work at that person to mold them into the image of Jesus. Now, I can be confident of that even in my struggle, even when I work with you and we work with each other in our struggles. And I want you to see something. Remember I gave you that list of those churches, Rome, Thessalonica, Colossae, 
Now Philippians, where Paul says, I thank God for you. One of the churches that he thanked God for, thank God for them, was the church at Corinth. Yikes. You guys familiar with Corinth? I mean, I just don't know how much gratitude I'd be able to muster (laughs) for those guys. They're an absolute train wreck. If you read his letters to them, they're, they're a mess. And yet, in his first letter, at the beginning of the first letter, he says, I always thank my God for you. It's a rebuke to me. Because I too easily arrive at, that person just isn't going to make it. But if God has given them spiritual life, not only will they make it, he will continue his work until its completion and until the day of Jesus Christ. One preacher has said, the entire Bible testifies of the preserving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It tells us of a faithfulness that will never be removed, of a life that will never end, of a spring of water that ever satisfies, of a gift that will never be lost, of a hand out of which the good shepherd's sheep can never be snatched, of a chain that can never be broken, of a love which will never be, from which we will never be separated, of a calling that will never be revoked, of a foundation that will never be destroyed, and of an inheritance that will never fade. The great apostle taught the preservation and the perseverance of the saints of God. It was God's work. God is the one who initiated it. And all that they were doing was just a manifestation of the change that God had brought about in their lives. And what God was doing then, he would not set aside. He would preserve them to the coming of Jesus. He would complete the work. And so we too can say with confidence, the work that thou hast in me begun shall by thy grace be fully done. And because of that confidence, that means I know that in my partnership with you and in your partnership with me, our investment in each other will not return void. We are to be thankful for our partners in the gospel. Secondly, in your outline. We should think fondly of our partners in the gospel. Verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you. Now notice this word feel. It's right for me to feel this way. You know, as you think about Paul and some of the very direct things that he had to write in some of his letters in the New Testament, you don't think of him as a kind of touchy-feely guy. And he's not. He's extremely serious about his work. But nevertheless, he's not shy about saying how he feels about God's people. It's right for me to feel this way about you. And that word feel is a word not just for emotion, not just sentimentality, but rather developing a mindset, including certain attitudes and dispositions toward God's people. Develop a way of thinking about a mindset toward our brothers and sisters, our partnership, our partners in the gospel. That includes our attitudes and our dispositions toward them. I think fondly of you because, verse 7 goes on to say, I have you in my heart. 
We think of heart as only emotion, but in the Bible, it's the deepest center of the individual. It's the seat of both the will and decision-making as well as the emotions. So it's right for me to have this mindset about you, whether I think fondly of you, I have the, that kind of attitude and disposition toward you because I have you in my heart. And the reason is, verse 7, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Now that phrase, all of you share in God's grace with me, is literally all of you share in, and it has the article before the word grace. So you could read it, all of you share in the grace of God with me. That is, it's not just God's grace in general, but it's something specific that they are sharing with Paul in. What is that? I believe we have the clue to that in verse 29 of chapter 1. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Literally, verse 29 is this. You have been graced. When it says you've been granted, you have been graced. You have been graced on account of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sakes. They are sharing in the suffering of Paul. In that, they are going through something similar themselves. He's in Rome. They're in Philippi. But all the while, they're sharing, going through it, and they've not abandoned Paul in the midst of his trial. In verse 7, when it says you're sharing, that word for share comes from that same word again, koinonia. We have partnership together in this. So we think well, we think fondly of one another because I say in your outline. Our love is enduring. Our love is enduring. In the midst of all that's going on with him, in the midst of all that's going on with them, still they sent this present gift of help to him and other gifts prior to that. But they're also sharing because they're undergoing similar hardship as they defend, verse 7, and confirm the gospel. So one commentator says this may refer to their own defense of the gospel in the city of Philippi, especially in the face of the hostility that they're suffering, similar to what Paul is undergoing. The hostility, after all, comes, now hear this, from the empire, the Roman Empire itself, for both of them, of which both they and he are citizens now in trouble because they hold allegiance to a citizenship in which Lord Christ holds sway, even, in fact, especially over Lord Caesar. And so they're defending, Paul is and they are, defending and confirming. The word defending, some of you know the Greek word. It's apologia, we get apologetics from it, to defend the faith. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament of a legal defense. On one of the many occasions when Paul was hauled before authorities, he says in Acts chapter 22, brothers and fathers, listen to my defense, my apologia. On another such occasion, Acts 25, it says Paul made his defense. I've done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. That's defending. But then there's the confirming. And that was also a legal technical term for guaranteeing or furnishing security. It's used, this word is in Hebrews chapter 6. The oath confirms what is said and it puts an end to all argument. 
Paul may be thinking, as he writes this, when he talks about defending and confirming in these legal terms, primarily of his approaching hearing in which he is going to, he's under arrest now, and he's going to have a time where he's going to have to give a defense of the gospel that he preached and when he, which he hoped to have occasion to offer clear proofs of the truth of the gospel. And they are supporting him materially and they're supporting him in prayer and they're undergoing the same kinds of things in Philippi and as a result, they share together in this. So we should think fondly of our partners in the gospel because our love is enduring. Notice, it's enduring because the circumstances are lousy, we're still together. Your circumstances are lousy, ours are lousy, but we're not abandoning you and you not us. We're together. It's enduring. But lastly, our love is inclusive. Inclusive. Verse 8. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. God can testify. It's, a, it's a, a mild oath that he's invoking. As God is my witness. This is how I feel about you. Only God could truly vouch for Paul's feelings about his Philippian friends. Because those feelings ran so very deep. And he says in verse 7 and he says in verse 8. This is about all of you. All of you are sharing with me, and I feel this way, verse 8. I have this affection and long for all of you. That is, as in the love of Jesus, so with the love of Paul, there is no favoritism. I love and have affection for and share in the gospel with all of you, he says. Now, he loves them in the truth. He loves them deeply. In fact, he loves them so much. Hear this. He loves them so much that he loves them more than he needs them. Have you ever heard that? It's a good phrase to keep in mind. If we really love each other, then we need to love each other and want what is in their best interest more than we need each other. And that means at times I'm willing to sacrifice tension between us in order to lovingly tell you the truth of Jesus. Here's your take-home truth. Christians are committed to one another for the cause of Christ. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, thank you for reminding me and reminding us of what you've assigned us to do, the work of the gospel, and who you have called us together with in order to pursue the work of the gospel. It's each other. And each of us, though, at different places in our journey, all of us have been called together by the self-same Lord. And all of us have been led together to this place and at this time in order to carry out your work. And so, Lord, help us to be people who are thankful for your work in us and each other. And may that affect, then, the way we view each other and the way we carry out your work together. Lord, we thank you for our brothers and sisters all over your world of whatever nationality, of whatever race, of whatever denomination, those who truly belong to you and who love you and who are carrying out your work, we thank you for our partnership with them as well. And we ask you, Lord, to bless 
the work that you are doing then through us and through them. Lord, whatever comes our way, help us to look back on your servants of old and to know that they have first walked this path before us. And most importantly, the Lord Jesus walked this path before them. Thereby, may we have confidence because you are at work and may we have joy, an abiding sense of delight that you're in work in our lives and in theirs as well. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.